Um, hey, it's so good to see you again. And uh, if you're joining us online or in person from a place of uh, faith or a place of doubt, a place of joy or a place of sorrow, a place of uh, fullness or of emptiness, however you find yourself this morning, we're just glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Redeemer. Well, what is Redeemer? Uh, Redeemer is a church, and what that means is we are a, a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And the way that we go about doing that is we gather together every Sunday so that we can worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might learn to rest in His love that He has for us. And then we get together throughout the week individually and small groups and over, over coffee and uh, donuts, and uh, we, we, we try to remind one another of His love for us. And as we rest in His love and remind one another of His love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that we can reflect His love to our neighbors here in Midtown. We, we dream of seeing our city flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. So, that's a little bit about who we are. We're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love. Love God and our neighbor as we rest, remind, and reflect His love. And in order to help us do that this Advent uh, season, what we've been doing is we're looking at the rationale that the Bible gives us for why Jesus came. As we're, as we're gearing up to celebrate Christmas, this great historic celebration of the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, the Bible gives you all of these different reasons sprinkled throughout why it is that He came in the first place. We saw a couple of weeks ago that He came to preach. We've seen that he came to call, we've seen that he came to serve, and in our passage that we'll see here this morning, he came to seek, to seek after us. Uh, Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist and a author and speaker, he's written a lot about shame. He's, he's got this great quote in one of his books where he says this, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. We're all born into this world looking for somebody that's also looking for us. I think he captures what is so intrinsically human about us. We are all craving, longing for someone who's looking for us, wanting to be us, uh, uh, wanting to, to be with us, to chase us down, to seek after us. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons why children um, so often say, you know, look at me, mom, dad, look, 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 look at what I'm doing, look at me. That's why children so desperately want to have their parents in the stands at their, you know, sporting events. Uh, this is why when you show up at a community or a church that you've kind of been a part of and people are starting to get to know you and somebody sees you and recognizes you and their face lights up and they remember your name, there's something that just you feel so cared for, so loved by that, so you, because somebody has, has recognized you, they know you. We so desperately want to be known. We're born looking for somebody looking for us. And this passage, I think, is really amazing because it shows us that Jesus is the one that we are all ultimately looking for because he's the one that is looking for us. So I want to show you uh, just two things, try to answer two quick questions for our time this morning. I want to see um, who Jesus seeks, who Jesus is looking for, and why. Who Jesus seeks and why Jesus seeks. So let's look at who Jesus seeks first. Uh, who does Jesus seek? Well, the passage just straight up tells you. In verse 10, Jesus uses his favorite self-designated nickname, the Son of Man, and he just tells you, the Son of Man came to seek and to save who? The lost. Now, if you're, 
If you've been around uh, the evangelical church at all, the word lost may have some particular baggage for you, which would be understandable. But what does the word lost mean? What is Jesus referring to when he talks about the law, being lost, someone who is lost? Well, it reminded me of a story when I was in college. I went to this uh, retreat. It was a Young Life Leadership Retreat, and we went to this ranch out in the middle of kind of nowhere, Oklahoma. And uh, one afternoon, that Saturday afternoon, me and probably maybe six or seven friends decided to go for a hike. There was no trails. This was just kind of rugged Oklahoma, like wilderness. I mean, picture like a desert landscape. And we go out there and we're kind of, you know, talking and getting deep into conversation. About an hour goes by and we look up and we realize we have no idea where we are. We have no clue how to get back to where we just came from. You know, it, it was one of the most horrifying feelings that I can remember because you could just look in 365 degrees and see just nothing but land. And you begin to think, okay, if I'm going to get home, I have to start moving in some direction, but I don't know which direction to go in because if I start going this way, there's no guarantee that that's where the ranch is. It could be sending me further and further away from where I need to get. Completely disoriented, completely exhausted. We were out there wandering around for hours. None of us had brought water. It was horrible. We eventually obviously found our way back to the ranch, but I will never forget that feeling of I don't know where I am right now, and I have no clue how to get out of this. That's the feeling of being lost. I don't know where I am, and I don't know where to go. That's where you find Zacchaeus in this story. He's the one that's lost. In fact, let me show you. Look at, look at how he's described in verse 2. It says, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He's a chief tax collector. That means he's like at the top of the tax collector pyramid scheme. He's the CEO, which means every other tax collector underneath him, he gets a cut of some of their money. So he's, he's, here's what we know about um, Zacchaeus, even from just one verse. He's powerful. He's successful. He's at the top of the food chain. He's rich. He could afford anything that he you know, wanted, essentially. He could afford the, you know, the nice giant house. He could afford the bougie clothes. He could afford uh, you know, a nice lake house on the Sea of Galilee. He could get in you know, his VIP access to all the hot clubs and restaurants in Jericho. I mean, he is like at the top. And yet, look at verse 3. He was seeking to see who Jesus was for all of his money, for all of his accomplishments. Look, it's not enough. He's still seeking. He's seeking for something. There's something inside of him that says, okay, the life that I have created for myself, it's not working. He's lost. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where to go. He just knows that maybe this Jesus guy that I've been hearing about, maybe he's got some answers for me. You see this man that is utterly vacant on the inside. He's, he's desperate for answers. With all of his money, all of his success, all of his kind of comfort and ease, it's not enough. He's seeking for more. And in fact, he's so desperate. Look at what he does in verse 3. Well, you find out in verse 3 that he's a, he's a short dude, and the crowds around him uh, hate him because he's, you know, been robbing them, taking all their money. And it's not like they're going to let him by to get a better view of this Jesus that is coming. So look at what he does in verse 4. He runs ahead and he climbs up into a tree like a moron. Like this is not normal behavior back then or I guess really even now. Um, he's so utterly desperate. He's, he's literally willing to go out on a limb just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. That's how lost he is. Maybe this guy, Jesus, has the key. And so when Jesus shows up, look at what he does. Verse 5. 
When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus walks right into this thing and just directly beelines it for Zacchaeus, singles him out by name. He walks by all of the other put-together, moral, religious, good civilians, and he looks at this, you know, the head of this organized crime circle up in a tree and says, Zacchaeus, I want to stay with you. I don't want to hang out with them. I want to hang out with you. You know, we, we, in certain Christian circles, we have this expression of um, inviting Jesus into your life. And this story, I think, completely flips it around because you see Jesus inviting Zacchaeus into his life. Here is uh, Zacchaeus, and he does not approach Jesus with anything. He doesn't, he doesn't try to pitch. You know, there's no elevator pitch here. He doesn't, he doesn't roll out his resume. He doesn't approach Jesus with any dignity or of any of his riches. He's, he's really at the lowest point in his life. He's utterly humiliated up in a tree with everyone around him hating him. He's got nothing. He's at the lowest point in his life, and Jesus comes into his life and seeks after him and wants to be with him. That's what we're celebrating this week at Christmas. We're celebrating this reality that God has come down in the person of Jesus to retrieve us, to retrieve his own people who were lost, and he cannot stand to sit in the sidelines and watch his creation get destroyed and ruined by our selfishness and our sin and the conflict and the ugliness, and so he comes and he seeks beelining towards his people. Uh, you may know that uh, Harry Potter, his position on the Gryffindor-Quidditch team is to be a, he's a seeker. That's his official title. He's a seeker. And if you know anything about seekers, you know that seekers, their whole job is to find the snitch, the golden snitch. Because when you capture the golden snitch on the Quidditch field, um, the match is over. And so there's these, you know, stories when Harry is playing, whenever he catches a glimpse of just a little flint of gold, the golden snitch, he, like a heat-seeking missile, beelines it. He's just charging full steam ahead. In fact, there's some stories, I think this was in book one, where the, where the snitch is, is, you know, Harry's way up high, the snitch is really low, and he's like on his broom, charging full steam ahead. I think this is book one. Charging full steam ahead to grab the golden snitch, and he, he's risking his safety, he's risking his life, and he... I think he catches it in his mouth, actually, now that I'm remembering it. At the very end, he, he's, he's risking it all like a heat-seeking missile going after the snitch. Jesus is the same way. When he sees someone who is desperate, vacant, lost, he beelines it towards them. I will chase after them, and I will, say, I will retrieve them. What does that look like in a person's actual life, though? I want to give you one example of this. There's an amazing um, uh, account by Anne Lamott, who's an author. Uh, she's written several books, and in several of her uh, books, she, she kind of details her own story of how she went from kind of, um, I, I don't know if she was an atheist or agnostic or whatever, and she eventually becomes a Christian. And she tells her story, and I want to just read you just a little snippet from one of her books. And uh, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm going to edit it for the sake of little ears because she's, you know, she uses some potty language, some foul, she, you know, she's foul-mouthed at times, so we're going we're gonna to edit it up for the sake of church here, but here's what she says. Quote, I did not mean to be a Christian. I've been very clear about that. My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus for the first time 12 years ago were, I swear to God I would rather die. 
I really would have rather died at that point than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-winged, non-believer friends know that I had begun to love Jesus. I think they would have been less, less appalled if I had developed a close personal relationship with Strom Thurmond. At least there is some reason to believe that Strom Thurmond is a real person, you know, more or less. But I never felt like I had much of a choice with Jesus. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it, but as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if it just keeps showing up, mewing outside your door, you'd eventually open it up and give him a bowl of milk. And of course, as soon as you do, you're ruined. And the next thing you know, he's sleeping on your bed every night and stepping on your chest at dawn to play a little game of push-push. I don't know what that is, but we'll keep going. <laughs> I resisted as long as I could, like Sam I am and green eggs and ham. I would not, could not in a boat. I would not, could not with a goat. I do not want to follow Jesus. I just want expensive cheeses <laughs> or something. Anyway, he wore me out. He won. I was tired and vulnerable, and he won. I let him in. This is what I said at the moment of my conversion. Forget it. Come in. I quit. Jesus is seeking the lost, relentless. Maybe one of the reasons why you're here right now, out here in the cold, wet parking lot, instead of at brunch, is because he's seeking you. I don't know. I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean that to be manipulative. I just mean that you're not here by accident. And maybe the reason why you're here sitting here listening to this is because maybe this is one step of many that Jesus is showing up on your door, mewing outside, relentlessly pursuing you, wanting to come in. He seeks the lost. He seeks people like me that are disoriented and don't know which end is up. That's who he seeks. Here's the last question. Why? Why does he seek the lost? Well, let's look. Well, again, he tells you in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The reason why he comes seeking the lost is to save them. And again, that's a, that's a very Christian-y word, and maybe you have baggage with that. What does it mean to be saved? Well, the um, church in recent decades has talked about being saved as uh, getting your soul to heaven. You're saved when you die and your soul goes to heaven. But I want to show you what salvation looks like according to this passage. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, meaning salvation has broken into Zacchaeus' life in real space and real time, like in the present tense. Salvation comes in and you get this picture of a man that becomes radically, utterly transformed on the spot. In fact, look at, what this, look, at, look at what happens. Here's where we left Zacchaeus. He's up in a tree, verse 5. Jesus comes to this place. Uh, he looked up and he said to this poor, humiliated man, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And that was the statement that cracked Zacchaeus open like an egg. I must stay at your house. Do you know what that means? To, to stay at someone's house is a very intimate thing. It means that you trust this person. It means that you love this person. It means that you're, you're in a relationship with this person. You, you accept this person. For Zacchaeus to be told, I want to stay with you, 
utterly blew his mind because everyone in Zacchaeus' life hated him and rejected him. In fact, this is why the crowd doesn't move to give him a better view, even though he's, ta- you know, he's short and he's kind of jumping over everybody at the back. Nobody likes him. In fact, when Jesus says, I got to stay at your house, look at how everybody labels Zacchaeus in verse 7. They say he's gone to be you know, a guest with a sinner. Zacchaeus was despised, rejected, hated, and here comes Jesus moving towards him with intentional, gracious acceptance, which he did not deserve. He had to be thinking, okay, me? Jesus, are you me? Of everyone here, I'm who you, do you know what I do for a living, Jesus? And yet, here's what's so fascinating. Every other religious worldview, every other spiritual perspective says you must climb your way up to God. If you want to connect with the divine, you better get to work. You better believe the right things. You better pray the right prayers. You better read the right books. You better get after it. And maybe if you work hard enough, maybe if you're devoted enough, maybe you'll get to connect with God. Climb your way up to him. Christianity says the exact opposite. You can never climb your way up to God. You can never make your way up to him so he comes for you. We're too humiliated. We're too lost. He's the one that's utterly seeking us purely by grace. We don't earn this. We didn't do anything to trigger this, you know, search and rescue mission. We're just lost, and he comes chasing us. This light bulb clicks on for Zacchaeus, and he realizes that salvation has got to be completely by grace. And look at what happens in verse 6. It says, so he hurried and came down. So I love that image of Zacchaeus like scurrying down the tree as fast as he possibly can. He hurried, and he came down and received him joyfully. That's what it means to be a Christian in a nutshell. It's to receive Jesus joyfully. You realize that he is the gift like a present, you just receive it. You receive him. It's not earned. You, you do not achieve salvation. You can only receive salvation. The question I want you to wrestle with this morning is this. Have you received Jesus? When you are thirsty, it's one thing to look at a glass of water and, and, and know cognitively that that can satisfy your thirst. And it's another thing to pick it up and receive it, to drink it in. When Zacchaeus begins this story... He, he, he's looking at the glass of water. He's seeking a glimpse of Jesus just to figure out, is this somebody that can give me answers? By the end of the story, Zacchaeus has received him. He has taken him in. He's gone from just believing that this is an answer to my problems to actually taking it in personally. Have you received Jesus personally? And, and notice, Jesus or Zacchaeus doesn't just receive him. It says he receives him joyfully. It means he is so overwhelmed with the, with the idea of grace, it's, it's, it's just like this explosion of joy in his life. He's overwhelmed with gratitude because grace is utterly, hilariously preposterous. It's so lopsided. I'm just here with my shame and my humiliation and my lostness, and you want me? You seek after me? You come after me and you forgive me and you, you bring me into the lifeblood of your very being and you forgive me and you transform me? That's crazy. In fact, you know, salvation by grace is like this, this, this dam that gets broken and it just pours into Zacchaeus' life in such a way that, that look at this response in verse 8. 
He says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Half of my stuff I'm going to give to the poor. That's bananas. And he says, if there's anybody that I've defrauded, which is basically anyone he's ever been in contact with, he says, I'm going to repay them times four. I mean, he's, he's, he's doing reparations. Jesus did not ask him to do this. This was just the natural reflex of a heart that has been touched by grace. Do you see what has happened to Zacchaeus? Salvation has come and has broken in. He went from this vacant, desperate, lost, empty man to a man that is abundant and overflowing with gratitude and with kindness and with generosity. All because he has found this one that he realized was looking for him. He found Jesus who he discovered was actually the one that had found him. Now, if grace can do that for someone like Zacchaeus, how much more can grace transform us? Because we understand grace in a much bigger concept than Zacchaeus did. All Zacchaeus knew was that Jesus wanted to hang out with him. (laughs) But we understand the bigger story. In fact, you can kind of even see a glimpse of it. Look at verse 1. It says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Where's he going? Passing through where? Jesus was not just meandering, wandering from town to town. He's going somewhere. Well, if you know anything about the Gospel of Luke, you'll know that the way that the book, the way that that gospel is organized is when you get to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, there is this major pivot. It says, you can look it up, Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And after 951, the rest of the gospel, Jesus is beelining it towards Jerusalem. Why? So that he could die on a cross, on a tree. For Zacchaeus' place and for, our, and for your, your place and my place. When he asks Zacchaeus to come down from the tree, he eventually knows, I'm going to have to climb up a tree. I'm going to have to take your place. In order for me to get you, I'm going to have to go through the hell of the cross, but I would rather go through the agony and the hell of the cross and be with you than to stay in heaven and be without you. I'll end with this final story. Uh, One of my favorite movies of all time is this movie called Magnolia. I can definitely not officially recommend it from a pulpit because it's pretty graphic and shocking. It is an amazing movie, though. It's long. It's like three hours. There's like 13 main characters. It's a complicated, big movie. But one of the stories of this um, movie is uh, you have these two characters. One of this character is this kind of bumbling cop. He's played by John C. Riley, And he is this lovable, dear, kind-hearted, but kind of buffoon man. And uh, in many ways, he's kind of the Christ figure of the whole story. And early on in the movie, he takes a disturbance call, and he meets this woman that uh, is kind of the most dysfunctional kind of train wreck character of, of the whole movie. At the beginning of the movie, she is prostituting herself out for drug money. As the story unfolds, you realize that her dad had uh, abused her when she was younger. She's just kind of a mess. She's really unhealthily skinny. Her hair is always matted and kind of uh, stringy. And she's just, she's just, um, she never smiles throughout the whole movie. And eventually, as the story progresses, this cop starts to fall in love with her. 
this cop that you're like, you're kind of cheering for. He's like the, the underdog that you're like, he's just a good guy and you want life to work out for. And you're like, why? Why does he want to be with her? And they go out on this date and they have this amazing, there's this kind of amazing conversation over their dinner scene where they kind of come clean on a bunch of stuff. It's an amazing story. But as the story unfolds and you realize, okay, this is the guy that you're cheering for. Of all the characters, why would he want to end up with her? The most dysfunctional, the most out of control, kind of the hardest to love character in the whole movie. And you realize that's what makes this movie so brilliant and so moving when the Christ figure loves somebody that's a complete mess because that's our story. Jesus the Christ comes after and loves people that are complete messes and doesn't just, is not content to just love us from afar. He comes after us. He seeks after us. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we're here because he didn't just leave us to ourselves. He came after us. Here's the final question. Will you receive him? Will you stop running and hiding and just quit and receive him joyfully? It's an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you haven't left us. You haven't abandoned us, but you've come after us in your very son. I pray that that would convince us to receive you, maybe reluctantly, <laughs> Maybe like Anne Lamont with a lot of questions where we just resign ourselves just to stop running. But I pray that you would convince us and overwhelm us of your goodness towards us. That grace would come in and transform us from the inside out. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.